0: This episode is brought to you by the Hammerhead Karu 2. The Hammerhead Karu 2 is a next-generation cycling computer that brings the power of advanced GPS navigation and intuitive software right to your handlebars. Keep listening to the episode to find out how you can get a free Hammerhead heart rate monitor.
1: Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, a weekly podcast where a panel of scientists, pro cyclists, and cutting-edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, science, and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by Dr. Jason Boynton, sports scientist and cycling coach, Damien Roos, who's the founder of Semi Pro Cycling Podcast and a professional cycling coach, and me, Cyrus Monk, pro cyclist and cycling coach. The Cycling Performance Club is recorded live in the presence of an online audience. To find how you can watch this live, head to any of our social media and uh, we will give links to those at the end of the show and we will have the link there where you can listen in to the next episode live on Riverside FM. This week, we will be discussing the paradigms of cycling performance and whether we are approaching cycling performance in the right way at all at the top level of the sport and at levels preceding this level. So we've had a lot of work put into this by Damien and Jason and they I'm sure will share their thoughts with you on this today. So Damien, do you want to take this away first?
0: Yeah, I want to start with this idea that we're having a bit of a deep dive into coaching, high performance, a lot of different topics. I'm not sure exactly where it's going to go today, but we certainly have a lot of thoughts around the structure and support around cycling performance, even coming back to what is cycling performance in some ways. And an important part of this for me is coaches. So I want to talk about coaches and how they fit into high structured teams. And then what the alternatives are as far as the best type of coach, and then kind of wrap that up at the end and make that really relevant for anybody that's listening that would be looking for an individual coach, so separate to teams, professionals, and and anything like that. So how are we going to start this off, Jason?
2: I think it would be really good to mention really quick that when I was thinking about my portion of this episode and what we're kind of looking for out of this uh, podcast, I'm hoping this is going to be a really good jumping off point for us moving forward for a lot of the guests we bring on. All right, So th- I think this conversation will kind of outline some of the things that we'll probably want to talk with when we bring on sports scientists and uh, cyclists and things like that. So I think one part of my thinks is like, this is going to be a good, um, almost like, skeleton for the things that, and the topics that we want to discuss in the future? I don't know if you what your thoughts are on that, Damien.
0: I think it, it at least would frame how we think about performance and what different parts there are and who contributes. It puts into a, a nice little package of the way that we want to approach it, which is relevant because it's the Cycling Performance Club, but it's, it's good just to explicitly state it, have it out there, and then we fit in the people that we interview, ask them questions, how do they think about these things. I think that's that's where it would fit with other people.
2: You know, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about since we were on in the private chats on Clubhouse before we were doing the podcast. So this we've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. So uh, happy to finally get here. But I think the, the way I was thinking about it and thinking about framing this is our current par- paradigm of improving cyclist performance. Is it flawed? Can we improve it? What do we like about it? What don't we like about it? And I think for me, starting that question is comes down to what is the biggest limiter that we have to improving a cyclist's performance?
1: Just firstly, I'm going to butt in, what do you mean by paradigm? Because I saw the word and I was like, okay, and I've heard it before a lot. But in the context of cycling performance, what are you referring to when you are talking about the paradigm of cycling performance?
2: It's a very general term, I would say it's, more about the philosophy and the approach
1: yeah and i assume here we're, we're going to be talking about the structure of these cycling performance units as well when we're referring to that yeah yes
2: yeah, things like that so it's not necessarily like a period you know periodization people could think well maybe that's how what they mean by structure but it's much more kind of focused out more than that yeah. you know it's kind of like the interactions between the athletes who they work with development, that type of thing. It's just, yeah. just some of the things that we see within that we like and think are going well and maybe places where we could improve. Yep. But the, the the question is, well, what is our biggest limiter? And to me, I, I would say that is knowledge. And because within cycling or anything else, Your ability to improve is going to be highly dependent on the choices that you make and the decisions that you make. And to make an example of that is just this thought experiment of... Imagine if you were omniscient and you knew everything and you knew exactly how to train. you knew exactly what volume you needed to do for a day, at what intensity you needed to do it at to, in order to get to stimulate the adaptations you needed. you knew exactly how much sleep you needed to get to recover you know you knew exactly how much skills training you needed to do to become really good at certain skills. if you knew exactly every single decision perfectly how far would you be able to advance your training and your development as a cyclist and i think it would be very very high to put that into perspective for any listener just think about what you're doing right now and listening to this podcast you, you know we hopefully we're entertaining but also we provide information and that information comes in and hopefully it will allow you to have thoughts and make better decisions based on the information that you're getting from us. And and so that's kind of where I'm at starting with this, is where is our knowledge coming from in in that type of thing, I think. I'll I'll hand it over to you, Damien.
0: Well, I wanted to start with coaching. I think coaching is, the coach is the traditional one that has this knowledge. If you're talking about an individual Mm -hmm. athlete, um, they're usually just working directly with one coach, and then that coach is the one, the, the, the know-it-all essentially the do-it-all. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a good, that's a good segue. Cause I, yeah, the, yeah, cause usually, if you, if you aren't looking for the information yourself, then yeah, you're going to go with the coach and cause they have more knowledge and to make the decisions and help you make your decisions. Yeah.
0: It's a bit, it is a bit different the way that everything is structured now. there is so much information available, but still having that coach there as that filter, the first line um, is, is very important. So that's where I want to start. And then it kind of go into coaching and then we'll kind of, maybe we'll come out of coaching with the, the different roles that a coach does, and then see how that relates to performance. So starting with coaching, there was a quote I saw recently by a sports psychologist, Daniel Abrahams, and it was coaching is a mix of context, culture, research, practice, and exploratory thinking. It kind of summed up to me how broad coaching is, and it's more than just training prescriptions for example. And the big part of this is regardless of any of these roles, the thing here is that the athlete and their performance is always at the center of this. It's always about improving the athlete's performance. So all of this information and everything, the role here is to improve the athlete's performance. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this this term athlete-centered coaching. Is that something you've heard before?
1: I have not heard of that.
0: Okay, so it's probably something that you would naturally do then, I believe.
1: Yeah, it's something I would think most coaching is centered around the athlete. Mm-hmm.
0: I think in contrast to that is where coaching can be centered around the coach. So more like in team sports, for example, mm-hmm. where the coach is the one, they tell everybody just what to do. They, they bring down yeah, yeah, I guess so. the wrath yeah. on everyone. But in an individual sport, it probably leans naturally to athlete-centered. And so yeah. you have the athlete. Outside of that, like I said, you have the coach and then outside of that, again, that's where you start to bring in the support from specialists, the psychologists, the physiologists, the physiotherapy, doctors, strength and conditioning, biomechanics, mechanics, and aerodynamicists. So the coach can be at times one or more of these specialized roles. And it's not necessarily replacing them, but a lot of the time it's just resources. You just don't have the resources to go out every single time something comes up and seek out a specialist. But something else I want to talk about to hammer home this idea of how broad a coach's role is. Do you guys have anything else you can think of that a coach does?
1: Well, I was just going to say there also, if you're a beginner athlete or an amateur athlete working with one coach, it's generally tends to be beneficial to only get advice from one person to a degree because then if you're, for every piece of advice the coach gives you, sort of second-guessing that and going for a second opinion, then it's going to be time-consuming for the athlete, time-consuming for the coach having to justify everything as well. So I think in a lot of senses at that level of the sport, it does. it's just beneficial for all everyone involved just working with the one person. Obviously, as you get higher up, um, if I'm seeking nutrition advice, I'm not going to go to Jason over someone that's a qualified dietitian. So as as you're sort of moving up the levels. Whereas if I am just starting out and I say, oh, "Should I be eating a ham and cheese sandwich during my ride or a sports bar?" Then Jason's going to be able to answer that question. So I think as you move through the sport is where you demand these different levels of expertise and that's where you actually have have to have more staff required because the generous generalist generally can't uh cover all of these areas to the level required in these high performance units whereas yeah at the the lower levels of the sport you can have that one person that does all the jobs
2: i'll just interject something really quick here on the topic around time and knowledge and expertise I think it's pretty fair to say that just about every piece of knowledge that you would need to become an effective coach is with the internet is available right now. I mean, in terms of just raw knowledge, it's all out there. It's and You could become a very effective coach, very effective at training um, if you just got on the internet and were able to surf through all that information theoretically. Um, but then it comes down to one, it comes down to time. So you're going to spend a lot of time looking up all that stuff, and uh, if you take time, that time is you know you're going to take time from work, take time from training, um, and then so you're looking at trying to, to develop that a level of expertise. Expertise to train yourself effectively could take years. So um, that's one of the things to kind of consider. There is that it's. I don't think right now the, one of the limiters is anything about um, the amount of knowledge out there or anything like that. It's more about the time that it would take to consume all of that knowledge and then kind of distill it and critically apply it, I guess. But yeah, that was just one little point I wanted to point out when you were talking about um, the knowledge and and the amount of expertise and what's available out there.
0: And and that is something we will actually touch on a little bit later. I I think it's an important point Mm -hmm. and it becomes more important when you do get to the higher levels. But as far as what you were talking about, Cyrus, with at club level, and then as you go up, it changes and you kind of need more and more. This is is something that I very clearly saw going through the Oz Cycling coaching courses and things. They have a very clear remit of what a coach is able to do, what their boundaries are at each level. So developmental, yeah, it's cool. You understand it. You can have a conversation with an athlete about um, basic nutrition, even basic bike fit, things like this, just to get them going. And then as everybody's skill, talent increases, then that's when you start getting these divisions and these divisions in the different parts of performance and then the specialists that come in to try and deal with that. And that's kind of the the next part of the equation here. It's these components of cycling performance and how we deal with those in a team environment or a high performance team. And this is something we've discussed, Jason, before. And you've brought up this idea of what might be happening now or what's a better way to do this. So, if you want to take away, like just start with your ideas around this.
2: Yeah. So, this is one of the ideas that I've been chucking back and forth with you guys since I've ever, or since i would known you. And a lot of this is influenced with my own background in motorsports, why it was racing go-karts at a young age. But in my mind, I think that it's probably more effective to approach cycling performance like Formula One does versus how you would develop athletes and maybe netball or basketball or wrestling or something like that. And to understand that, I'll get into what I'm kind of mean with that. And in the, the model of Formula One, it, because it is racing, right, it's from getting point A to point B as fast as possible. What shows up to the start line is a, a car or a chassis, the engine or the power unit, as you we were saying, and uh, the driver. So you can break it down into three bigger components. And if we we're going to look at that in a similar lens as to what is going on with cycling, the car or chassis could be the bike, Um, but the engine and the driver are the same person or the same entity, that would be the, the cyclist. And this gets into this idea where because it is racing, the engine or how the athlete can perform and what kind of power they can put out is a huge component of what is going to bring them to the finish line first or not first. Is that kind of how you're remembering my explanation there?
0: Yeah. Part of of this is kind of trying to figure out a hierarchy of what comes first though. Would you agree?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it comes down to this idea of like, what are these things? I think everyone has these things that they can hang their hat on to say, "Look, this is really important. Um, You know, you might have something like skills, tactics, nutrition, grit. We talk about grit technology, aerodynamics, all of these things are going to be very important when you are talking about cycling performance. And compared to the engine of the cyclists, it's hard to differentiate or put one of those above any other because each one of those is kind of a linchpin. If you take out, if you just totally mess up your nutrition, I mean, your race is over. So each one of these things has such a key component to cycling performance um that it's it would be really hard to say one of these is the, the the king of them all right so and
1: you obviously can't perform unless all three are functioning well it's the same in, in or, both regards like you can
2: yeah all three of those components and then those separate like skills and tactics and stuff like that if if you're horrible at tactics if you're horrible at skills you're not going to be winning bike races yeah. either even if you have an awesome engine but or the reasoning that i have that kind of puts the engine Out front of these other components of performance is I think if you look at say for you guys or were juniors, how many juniors that do you know that have gone through Oz cycling that had awesome, like the best experts working with them, had all of the drive, all the grit, everything, all the skills, made it through that program with the best experts that they could have, the best influences influencers that they could have and couldn't make it to the pro ranks. And similar to that, I mean in, in my shoes, you know how many masters cyclists do I know that are the cagiest people that you will ever meet, the best tacticians, yet aren't pros? But on the other side, how many times do we hear about in the cycling world where the, we have the former ski jumper, the former soccer player, the former rower, who after racing bikes for a few years is now performing at the top of the ranks, right? So this to me, happy to have someone else uh, write the show and tell me that I'm, I'm crazy for thinking this, but this to me is like really good evidence that the engine of the individual is something that has to be prioritized, um, not to the to the extent where it, it all these other things are forgotten, but it should be in the forefront of the mind of the person that wants to improve a cyclist performance um so yeah that's that's uh my only thoughts there but obviously as we've discussed on the show when we were talking about Paula Minespa's paper with the italian juniors we have to point out that a lot of those physiological things weren't really great predictors so yes you do need these other components along with the engine to make it at the top level um because the engine won't predict by itself but i think. If we're gonna if we are we're gonna point one at one and say like this is the w- important one, I think I think that's the argument to go
0: with. Yeah. Okay. That's the whole reason to bring up the F one stuff is to is to put that in front. Because mm-hmm. F one is really complicated. Like I had a bit of a look at these teams. They have fifty people going to races in each team to sort all this stuff out. Mm-hmm. So I started looking at the different parts of these teams and then how does that compare to pro cycling of course the budgets are very different so things going kind to of look different but what are the important things we can pull out here to help us look at how the teams uh say are they putting the engine first what are the types of people uh, do they have around like and and how is performance changing i think um you know these are the roles so I, I went hunting for roles and qualifications on world tour teams uh, and mm-hmm. I'm just going to spit out a couple of random job titles here so we get a bit of a sense of, of who's actually working. Because some of these were kind of new to me. So you have, you know, like you have practitioners like osteopaths there. There is mm-hmm. psychology, mindset expert, director of sports science, head of science, sports scientist and trainer, a PhD in endurance performance. Then there's yeah, biomechanics, mechanics, drivers, director sportifs, of course, nutrition medical strength and conditioning so there there seems like there's all the components there but is there something missing like what like what are we doing in this conversation are we trying to figure out exactly how to make it better what's wrong with it is there something that we could that we would change if we were looking at it
2: well one of the things that kind of uh sticks out to me and that is common within the cycling culture and one of the reasons that i brought this example up to you guys so it's this is nothing new for you guys, but um in Indy or Formula One, sorry, <laughs> Formula One. There's the American coming out. Indy. Um in Formula One, think how weird it would be if we had former drivers being hired to build the car's engine. It'd be really weird, I think. That I mean it's not to say that they wouldn't have any level of expertise around engines, but it normally in order to build an engine on a Formula One, you would be hiring a very, very well-qualified mechanic, you know, not your guy from Jiffy Lube. You'd be hiring engineers who had at least four years in school, probably in, in specific um, degrees, looking at performance. Um, they have something like that at ECU here. Um, and, and so it would be a very specialized person. And you think, well, that's Formula One and, and that type of thing. But the idea that that, that engine is very complicated. It's going to be more complicated than the, the engine in your car. But there's the other side of it where the human body is going to be much more complicated than the most complicated Formula One. So in our culture, in the cycling culture, we have this thing where we often ap- approach cyclists and former cyclists or fast cyclists or ex-pros or people who um, have national titles or whatever. We approach those people first to help build our engine. And and that
0: is kind of weird about the culture but you know at the at the top level i don't see it yeah yeah i i don't i don't come across ex-pros that haven't put in the time to go and study something separately before they are taking a role of engine builder Mm -hmm. it seems like the most direct change from being a rider is to then move into strategy director sportif manager something that directs Mm-hmm. And, and and that crosses over like in 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 you would see ex drivers potentially helping new drivers with driving, and that's kind of what that is.
2: Yeah, yeah, that to me makes the most sense.
0: Yeah, but I I think you're talking about when you get down to this murky level of when you start getting below world tour level and the crossover there of roles that that seems to happen, mm-hmm. and and the stacking of different things with different people and what they bring, and part of that is people that just uh, in the sport, end up coaching, doing all of these spe- very specific things around engine building and physiology and stuff based on uh, their experience rather than the experience uh, learned through knowledge of a wide variety of knowledge. Yeah. And, and I think there's a couple of reasons why
2: that can occur. And that has to do with one is, I think at that level, cycling might be influenced by other sports where, you know, the best way to approach increasing cycling performance is probably through this Formula One model that I'm explaining. Yet in other sports, it's fine for the coach just to be an ex-athlete, like golf something that's heavily skilled based. Where if you think of cyclists are athletes, but they're more than athletes. They are athletes with an engine that ride on a mechanical device as opposed to your golfer, yeah, they have that bit of technology in their hand, but it's going to be heavily skill-based.
0: It's a closed skill. It's a closed skill as well. Mm -hmm. So it's just repeating the same thing Mm -hmm. over and over again, basically. Mm -hmm. But I think here, we're not just talking about cycling here though. I think with Any sport, when you have someone that was an elite level athlete and they transitioned over to a position of uh, a coach or whatever, this comes back. And this is where I want to bring up that time thing that you were speaking about. They just didn't have the time to spend on learning that side of it. When you're an athlete, you're all in at that level. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you just miss out on that time. Like That's the biggest con, is that the right word, I see of having someone just move straight across yeah into the into a, the, a specific role
1: the other issue with the experienced coach is it's not necessarily the right experience so if you're yeah an amateur athlete or a junior athlete and you see this guy that's been a professional for years and years the 15 year pro that got his first world tour to a contract at 19 and yeah retired at 34 was won a heap of races, and then a lot of people would think, ah, that's great. He was really good. I want him to coach me. But if you're a 19-year-old kid that is trying to win some state-level races, he's got no experience racing state-level races. He was riding for Mathe when he was 19 or whatever. If if you're going to these guys that were obviously huge genetic potential and realised that, quite early then they're not going to have the actual experience that's required anyway and they're they're the ones that are missing out on the knowledge as we sort of already highlighted so you're kind of not getting either you're you're not getting experience that's useful to your situation and you're also not getting any physiological knowledge because yeah they've they've had a 15 year cycling career and they've just finished that and they haven't been reading through many papers in that time
2: yeah, I'll, I'll make two points to that. One, I would personally give the the pro the pass on the not racing at the state level. I, because I have to be intellectually honest here, like I, if I was, someone could make the same argument for me, because I don't have any experience racing at the pro level. So what experience, how are you going to be able to coach an athlete that is going to be racing races that are Bigger than anything that your races that your racers previously have um, coached. So I think th- I will give them a pass on that because yeah. yes, it's, the, there was something they can learn.
1: Yeah, that's that's my point. I'm getting to there is that yeah, that um, yeah, yeah. The, the experience. Like, why are we valuing experience above knowledge in that regard? When mm-hmm. yeah, often the experience isn't going to be a useful one yep.
2: yeah that's a good point but where i won't necessarily give the pass as much as right so even in the best case scenario let's say you have someone that's um been working maybe from the time they were 18 or younger with, with a really good institute like the ais and then they went to the olympics and then they were maybe on a team like Enios. so this individual is working with highly, highly qualified people and experts the whole course of their professional career. And even in that best-case scenario, even if they're very smart and they're very intuitive, and it's not the same as having the actual knowledge of those individuals that they worked with, especially when you consider the longer they're out of that system, Right, they're they're already once or twice removed from the knowledge of that that the individuals have that they're working with with the experts that they're having but now as soon as they move out of that system potentially their knowledge and their approach will stay static yeah because yeah,
1: that's a good point
2: the experts would have the knowledge and the understanding of how to look up new things and stay on top of the literature and that type of thing but if it's just been kind of fed to you and you're like wow this is what the ex, Even the experts at the time were doing, well, now all of a sudden you're five years out of that program, you're 10 years out of that program. How how much is your coaching developed over the time that things have changed? I mean, we were just talking well, like last week, Damian, how, was it what, 30 papers or something there? 35 papers that came out last week. I mean, staying on top of that stuff is insanely hard right now. now imagine like how that, what that's going to be like when we're you know, 10 years from now. Right. I mean, not to say that they're, that they're, they don't have anything right 10 years ago, but there's going to be, we're going to be learning new things.
0: And I'm in the, the personally as a coach, the same position where like, I'm not coaching the same. I was two years ago, things have changed Mm -hmm. a lot, but I understand the context of, for me, I understand the context of what's changed, why it's changed, how it's changed and involving my own system. But if you, yeah, if you're just looking back, You're just stuck. But it's common. It's very common that someone just becomes like a conduit of another coach's ideas and they're just passing those on.
1: Yeah. And I think it's important that even if you're learning from the very best physiologists and best coaches in an institute, you're only seeing what they give to you. So if you're a certain type of athlete that responds to a certain type of training, you're going to think that that is the best type of training for everyone. And then if you try and apply that to all of your athletes, if you try and apply that to your junior female athlete down the track, the kind of knowledge that you were gaining as a 26-year-old male track sprinter, like taking what you've got and transferring it on to, to all of your athletes uh, doesn't check out. And I think that's why, yeah, you wouldn't see, see it in Formula 1 to go back around to that analogy. You wouldn't see the guys that are working on the engine using anything that they learned 15 years ago because it's all just Mm -hmm. changing all of the time and it's Mm -hmm. not like yeah the experience is great in some regards and I know we'll get to that later in the topic but to be the best coach that you can be you have to actually be staying on top of of what's happening and how the performance world is changing.
0: Yeah, the thing, the thing that you bring up there is really interesting. It's something I think about a lot. It's like the process of coaching or building an engine is actually quite easy. Stress a system, try and make yep. a change. Mm-hmm. The, the yep. hard part, yep. the experience, the knowledge and that for me comes down to working with an individual, know, yep. knowing different types of people, how they respond, how you can get them the best out of them, all of that yep. stuff. Is, is the art and science of, of coaching.
1: And Jason, you said this the other day and it stuck in my head the other week how you see these coaches coming on and they're getting good results. Um, I don't know, yeah, maybe just say it for the listeners like how coaching is easy because I remember the way you put it and it was, yeah, quite good and that's sort of made me think that that's why people can say, oh, I'm going to be a coach and they will make an athlete better.
2: Um. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to recall exactly how, how that went. Um. But yeah, that's there's a paradox within coaching and training cyclists. Where yes, as I was explaining, on one side you have that the body is very complicated, but on the other side, I can tell you how to be an effective coach in about three sentences: accountability that which will automatically lead to an increase in training volume, add in some intervals. Now, some people are going to be appalled <laughs> that I said that, but other people are going to be, you know, is that it? I'm like, to an extent, to an extent. If you have an untrained individual. Yeah, stress. Yeah. Some
0: type of stress. Yep. Yeah. If you
1: give that to the majority of people, they will become better cyclists. Look, that's all it is.
2: Yeah. And this might be one of the reasons I think of how we've built this culture around fast athlete will be a f- an effective coach because just about anybody can do that and you will see results. And I've kind of come up with this analogy between healthcare and, and healthcare professionals and, and coaching. If, if you think about, um, say, say you get a headache when you're a kid or you get sick or diarrhea or something like that. And nine times out of 10, the medication that your mom would give you out of the medicine cabinet would be effective. And okay, well, if that's effective, then why do we have medical professionals, right? We have a hierarchy of medical professionals. So if the, if the aspirin doesn't work, then you're on the phone with the nurse. And then if that doesn't work, you know, it's a medic or a paramedic that might be helping you. And if that doesn't work, then you're going into a general pr- practitioner doctor and the they don't know what they're doing, then you're going on to a specialist. And so if we weren't aware of how if we lived in a world where we didn't have doctors, then the the best thing that we would have might be nurses and we would go to the nurses or someone who has limited medical training or someone who has first aid. Someone who has first aid is going to be potentially better than your mother or your dad or whoever um, that doesn't have medical training. And so without seeing the top end of, or having a lot of the experts, the engine builders out there, then it's going to be hard for the average cyclist to understand that there is something beyond the fast cyclist or the the former cyclist, right? So I don't, that's probably not exactly what you were talking about but um
1: yeah that's that's what i like that's what i have in mind so i always think about it graphically as okay i'm trying to as a cyclist and most cyclists all they're trying to do is reach their genetic ceiling that's all you can do Mm -hmm. everyone has a point at which they can't get any better i don't think anyone Mm -hmm. in the world has ever reached that point because we still don't know how to reach that there's so many factors involved but
2: well in my thought experiment that's a good really good way to put it in my thought experiment all those perfect decisions would lead to reaching that yeah ceiling yeah
1: exactly and I like to think myself that I have enough knowledge that I can hopefully get myself pretty close but the reality is I'd have no idea how close I am and I I hope that I'm I'm not close yet because I want to be able to get better from from where I am now as an athlete but I always think about it as, okay, if someone picks up a bike from the shop, they go out and start riding around. Maybe they're getting to about 60% already just from riding around a a fair few hours Mm -hmm. each week. They go and pick up a coach who their coach might just be someone that's ridden before at a a state level or a, a high club level, helps them out gives them a few intervals as you said a bit of stress that gets them to 80 percent like those are big jumps from 60 to 80 mm-hmm. percent just from working with someone yeah. that knows a little bit then they move on and get another coach with a bit more experience and a bit more physiological background that moves them from 80 to 90 percent like then we're start you starting to see now it's it's marginal gains like you've gone to a coach with a lot more expertise and experience still just the one person but you've got half of the half of the benefits that you got from the last coach so you're already starting to see okay this is like they're not big improvements now and then you add a nutritionist on that gets you to 92 percent you find someone mm-hmm. that's really good at bike fits that gets you to 94 you just keep adding on and then yeah, 95 96 we don't know what these percentages are because it's impossible to test yep. someone's genetic ceiling but the reality is once you're getting close there, you need more and more people to get those tiny little gains and that's where the marginal gains thoughts come from and that's why we see teams yeah. like Ineos with 50 staff rocking up to races. Yeah, yeah.
2: you also described really well the principle of diminishing returns. Yeah. Um, as you want the system to increase its perfection, if we want to call it that um it takes more and more you have to put more and more energy into th- the system the closer you get to perfection yeah so theoretically in order to get the perfect cyclist the energy that would require would be all of the energy in the universe <laughs> yes
1: <laughs> yeah
2: think about Is it like this that
1: some captain marvel stuff <laughs>
2: Yeah, <laughs> but it, yeah, it, I get deep
0: sometimes. <laughs> I have a ge- I have a general question here, though. We're talking about optimizing right at the top, but for the person that's just starting, how much would they benefit, or how much do they need to have somebody that would be w- working with someone in that top range? Is it correct that Oz Cycling says, "Developmental coach, this is what you can do. We're going to train you to do this. You take a step up. This is." the advanced coach, this is what you can do. Like, is there a benefit some, at someone with a lot of knowledge and information training someone lower? Hmm.
1: Yeah, I think this comes into what you were speaking at about, Damien, just the relationship that you can have with an athlete and what you can get out of the athlete. So I think, yeah, it, might, it just might not be a good fit to have someone that has done all of their work at the top level of the sport with someone that can only devote a certain amount of hours each week to riding and is just not that driven towards being being that good like that that's might not be a coach athlete relationship that works if this person just goes actually I've just decided I'm gonna have a week off during the middle of this overload phase because I want to go to the beach with my mates like this This kind of stuff they're not going to get any more out of a really high level coach than they would out of their mate who's done a undergrad course and a few races here and there that knows a bit about periodization like for for that kind of athlete they they might not get any more gains out of it so i'm
0: hearing you're saying coach. that it's coming it really should it would come down to the athlete's intent
1: yeah yep,
0: and then you match try so. then the level can be matched to that
1: yeah and that's that's where we get back to the.
0: Yeah but there may be a whole group of cyclists that it's yeah. it's yeah. fine no problem
1: Yeah okay. Yeah Yeah I think so and I think the thing there is I'd just be telling that group of cyclists where yeah they they could be getting the the former pro but don't like yeah the former pro might not be the the best coach they are still going to be a coach that leads to gains as we just discussed but don't pay the four hundred dollars a month for the former pro just pay the 50 or 100 for someone that can just write you out a rough schedule if if that's all that you're after to to try and just have something to stick to and um yeah and and improve a little bit have some goals to tick off but it's going to depend yeah on the on the athlete here
2: mm-hmm. yeah but that also isn't a discount working with that individual if if you can and it- fits in your budget Yeah, the way i look at it and the fit in the analogy that i have is like how great it would would it be if your parent was when your parents were a doctor yeah right because now you're getting aspirin from a doctor it's because now they're around in case you choke on that aspirin they're around you know if if the headache ends up being a brain tumor or something like that so um
0: that's a whole,
2: kind of a uh, dark example, but...
0: <laughs> you, I just the, you you know this one mean? comment related to that is it, uh, the way I think about it is just linked to going through my psychology degree. A lot of the professors there were like, you know, psychology isn't needed for a lot of people. They go straight to see a therapist, but there could be a friend or a community member or a parent. Mm-hmm. Like there's always these people... That are okay, like the the mum giving aspirin mm-hmm. is good, yeah. if it works for that for mm-hmm. that level mm-hmm. at that time. And, yeah,
1: and I think we spoke about this in the episode uh, from amateur to professional, where we talked about the pathways there. And yeah, that was that mm-hmm. was one of the first things was just find someone that that uh, can yeah give you a few tips along the way and get you started, and that will be mm-hmm. enough for a fair while. It's kind of like the analogy of. When you're getting piano lessons, the teacher only has to be one lesson in front of the student. <laughs> like, obviously, uh, it's that's not- That's life.
0: When you're getting it, life lessons.
1: Yeah. Obviously, it's <laughs> not a good long-term strategy and it's it's not the, this isn't the high performance world that we're, we're talking here. This is the day-to-day world, but that's going to be something that makes you a better cyclist. I
0: have- level. One thing to talk about here, and it's this proposal of this idea I put together of like what an ideal coach would look like. Uh, And then maybe if we come back from that, we can talk a little bit about combinations of specializations uh, that would be desirable when you're trying to stack them onto one person. If you are looking for a coach at that kind of mid to high level, I just keep thinking about this idea of a coach moving more into a manager position. Because everything is getting so specialized these days and knowledge is getting so deep. Having just an understanding of being able to talk the language of different departments is a skill in itself, I feel like. So having a coach that sits next to the athlete as their filter, so understanding the entire context of the athlete, and then bridging across to different sports science uh, and medical areas feels like a really good way... To make sure that you're getting the best of both worlds, you're getting the specialization, but you're getting the general understanding of when and where to use that. And then the athlete makes the final call. Well, not necessarily final call. You, you kind of it's a discussion between the two of you. So I, I wanted to float that idea with you guys. Whether this is something that you think we would be heading, um, even in the world of AI, you know, if there was some technology that being referenced that was doing a lot of the heavy lifting in some area Uh, but the coach doesn't have to understand all of it they just have to be across the language and know when it's useful do you think this is somewhere where coaching might go in the future i'll
2: I'll make one comment about your ai comment there that i think will segue nicely into what my thoughts are when people say that ai is going to replace uh coaches my response is those people either don't understand coaching, AI, or athletes. And so to get to your point, um, yeah, I think we're always gonna need that person that has that human connection with an athlete, uh, for sure. And and so I, I don't think there's gonna be any way to get around that. It, it but like any other's position, it's also gonna come down to competence, right? So um, you could have a very good uh bedside banner with <laughs> with um athletes, and if I was gonna use the medical terms, um, but be completely incompetent when it comes down to understanding what is good training practice and what is not. And at that point, the fact that you connect with athletes really well and convince them to do things that they need to do, but not having the realization of how bad your concepts of training science is, um, that could be detrimental to the athlete. And but I it, guess I get into that, a little that's bit. That's
0: kind of where you're talking about if the coach was taking on some of the role of the engine builder. Like for me, I would separate that out and mm-hmm. I'd say, okay, if we're trying to build an engine, the person that you put in charge of that part also mm-hmm. has to do their job and show you that they're doing their job.
2: Yeah, yeah. And then that gets down to like, you know, does the engine builder, what do they have control over? Are they doing all the modeling? Are they doing all the interval sessions? Are they doing basically all the prescription? Are they doing everything that we would, that you would do and with data analysis and training peaks and laying out the, the um, potentially, yes, workouts and that type of thing? Potentially, yes, in my head. Yes. mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can see that. And then they would be, they would have the, the say over the, I mean, the director would hopefully recognize that they're getting good information from this individual and just give it the green light. But, you know, I could see it in a situation where someone, um, would have a strong physiology background, but no coaching experience. And it's wonky, get things it's wrong. wonky.
0: Look, it's wonky. It's, yeah. it's like, yeah. here's your sports psych therapist. I'm not going to sit in the therapy mm-hmm. session with you but mm-hmm. I have to trust this yeah. person knows what they're doing and they'll help you enough you know like it's it's wonky yeah.
1: yeah that's an important thing that you just mentioned there and I was going to say is just trust in the coach from the athlete because that's like if the athlete completely trusts a program the it's another thing reason we see like bad coaches might still get good results or badly designed programs. If the athlete is believing that it's going to work, the power of the placebo is pretty good there. And they, they believe that it's the Mm -hmm. best training they can be doing and they fully trust their coach, then they're going to see benefits. Even if the training program is, isn't designed as good as it could be. And I think as well, it's such a difficult sport, uh, in terms of the the training required and the sacrifice required to put in that many hours, if you're not trusting that you're gonna see benefits, then it's it's not gonna it's gonna break down super quickly for the athlete and the coach.
0: Hey, it's Damien, and I want to talk about something I love about cycling, and that is performance is not just based on physical ability. It requires intelligence, anticipation, and the ability to see what others can't. That's why. This episode's sponsor, the Karoo 2, is such a fascinating device because it has the ability to see upcoming hills and the anticipated effort required. The Karu 2 is a standalone Android bike computer. It feels solid in your hands, and you can see your data clearly with the high-res, full-color, smartphone-like screen. And that screen is really useful when it comes to displaying some of the cool features Hammerhead has developed, like the Climber feature that lets you visualize and prepare for upcoming gradient changes in real time. This climber feature was used at this year's Tour de France by writers like Israel Startup Nations Michael Woods, and this is where the feature is interesting for performance nerds like us. A guy like Mike can take the climber and say, OK, I know my sweet spot is, let's say, 4 to 12 minutes at anything above 12%, and if it's not a headwind, that's a perfect opportunity for Mike. So." He actually looks for those opportunities live within a race. Think about how you could also use this feature to find your sweet spot on climbs and have the confidence that when you attack your riding buddies or in a race, you're doing it at the best possible time to get an edge on your competition. For a limited time, podcast listeners can get a free Hammerhead heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Karoo 2. Visit hammerhead.io right now and use promo code SEMIPRO at checkout to get yours today. That's a free hammerhead heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Carroo 2 when you go to hammerhead.io and use the promo code semi pro only for a limited time don't forget to use our special promo code because it supports our show that's hammerhead.io promo code semi pro and get your karu 2 and a free heart rate monitor today
2: i think this might be a good place to kind of discuss what I have in my notes here about, you know, how do we assess this success and the ability of a coach? You know, how, how do we quantify that? And, and this is, I think an important conversation for athletes who might be at just starting out and might be seeking coaches or might be seeking that extra help of like, what is a good coach? Cause speaking from experience, when I went and I hired my coach, I didn't have any idea. I just found somebody and I hired them. I, I, it was, And I worked with them for five years. And looking back with what I know now versus then, would I use that same coach? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. So I just want to kind of go through these things that I've kind of listed down here where people might equate with a successful coach so before we do
0: i'm just looking at the list and it's it's like output focused Mm -hmm. yeah um, which which i think is important because that's the thing you can actually measure um when Mm -hmm. i when i was looking at where we get to when we come down to like assessing a coach and i was just looking at their qualifications um Mm -hmm. around this idea of generalist specialist so someone that has Awareness of topics, but then they can go deep in one, two, three things. Mm-hmm. So th- I, there's both sides here, but, you know. But your mm-hmm. questions is definitely yeah. much easier as far as just just straight up looking at yeah. at certain parts. Yeah,
2: yeah So uh, like some of the things I have down here are the number of athletes that coach coaches, um, or the number of successful or pro athletes that the athlete coaches. In. What is the level of education or the certification that the coach has? Um, how long or what are the numbers of years uh, this the coach has um, coached for? And as you pointed out, every single one of those is very quantifiable. Except the thing is, is that you could have a coach that isn't very great that falls into each one of those categories <laughs> really well, right? You could have a coach with... Thirty athletes and maybe he was just the first coach in the a- in the area and was able to secure all those athletes but he's not a good
1: coach or maybe he just charges 20 bucks a month and
2: <laughs> yeah or something like that but yeah you can think of scenarios where you could have a lot of athletes and the the coach wouldn't be very good you can because as we've discussed before i think you mentioned it before cyrus where the best way to get athletes is just have it a- a lot of athletes, yeah, <laughs> because those athletes will will refer you. Yep. Um, but this number of successful athletes and pro athletes that gets into this idea I was thinking about earlier, but I think it's a good place to interject. Real quick, this idea that I have of the meat grinder coach, where you would have a coach that would only has this one plan. It's worked with a really successful pro, and they put everybody through it, and and people just just drop. I mean, I've had athletes. C- come from other coaches that were like this and work with me and it just sounds like i think it's worse probably in the triathlon world isn't it the ace union yeah well, or but i mean good examples of this i mean i'll say it. chris carmichael i've heard is like this um there was some other american coaches at the high level up there that just basically put their the athletes through the meat grinder and whoever comes out on the other side is the one that is going to make it big yeah so it's basically like the movie unbreakable i don't know if you guys saw that people the listeners that have heard want to see that movie probably get the reference but like basically this guy's just causing accidents everywhere and, and then finally bruce willis survives this train crash or whatever it was and they figure out he's a superhero because he's able to survive that but like in the process of that many lives were lost by dr glass or mr glass or which that that stuff has
0: got to be there. going away soon anyway with a new wave of, of of awareness of how to just treat people, how not to ruin people. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I, I hope, I hope, especially when around like when now that is performance modelers and all, we have a lot more and scientists getting more into the sport. I, 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 there's no reason to, to break an athlete in order to to see if they're going to be successful because I look at it even at the highest level let's say you're going to push that athlete and like you push them a little bit farther and maybe they would be winning at the world tour right but if I burn that athlete out and this is my own opinion but if I burn that athlete out and they walk away from the sport forever then I've lost somebody that could help other people in the future even though we're talking about how good is a pro coaching cyclist they could be inspirational on a lot of other levels. They could be helping with fundraising or any of these other things within the sport. And so as a coach, this other thing too is like the performance of the athletes is going to be really important, but if you burn them out, it's not going to be good.
1: And that's what I would have really high up in my, uh, what makes a successful coach is just continued enjoyment of the sport for their athletes. I think it's really important to remember like, yeah, we are the cycling performance club here, but we're also all enjoy cycling. Like that's Mm -hmm. a really important thing. And yeah, you don't want to break people to the point where they don't enjoy riding their bike anymore.
2: And one last thing I'll add to that is, you know, out of those things, you can think of a coach that could be, have really high numbers in those things and be successful, but there's there's a lot of luck involved in those things i think you could i mean not a lot of luck i would say you could get lucky and get any one of those things without being a good coach i think is the biggest thing
1: and i think part of being a successful coach if you're measuring it on the success of your athletes is just choosing good athletes (laughs) like if you having access to to good athletes athletes, yeah having access to good athletes yeah uh just if you're in your vetting process as you're starting to speak to an athlete, if you can work out early on that they're not going to be someone that's really driven and has that grit and determination required to improve and you just say, I don't want to work with you, then yep. you're going to end up with only athletes that succeed, which mm-hmm. is going to make it look better for you as well. So I think, yep. yeah, as a as a coach, the, the athlete has a really big role on how successful the coaching is.
2: Yeah. And that gets into my final point on this is what makes a good coach, I would say, is the ability to optimize and improve the performance of a diverse cohort of riders and provide solutions and guidance in a plethora of circumstances. But that is not quantifiable at all or barely quantifiable. I mean, that's... So the ideal coach it's going to be very hard to measure what that is. And so that's the tricky part, I think, for, especially if you're, like I said, if you're um, new to the sport, newer to the sport and looking, seeking a coach, all these other aspects that I brought up are going to be very easy to quantify. And that could, that number could be attractive for you. But of course, there's the other side of that, of the non-quantifiable thing of just the the hero worship too. You know, the attraction to the successful athlete as a coach is that bit of hero worship. And that might've been my case with my coach because he was a master's national time trial champion. So this guy knows what he's doing. I didn't play a lot of sports growing up. So, but you could see how that mentality, even for someone that didn't play a lot of sports growing up, that mentality of being with someone who is a good athlete is going to be a good guide.
0: But I think the the part when you just get to the point where it's just like just it's really hard to to really have these strict guidelines about who's best for every different person, it just kind of sums it up basically
2: <laughs> and I think one important point and I think this is a good place to put this is we were talking about in this conversation, you know we don't want people to our listeners to feel kind of excluded in this because there's going to be a lot of people that don't have the time or the money or anything like that to go back to school to get undergrads or master's in physiology or a hard science or psychology or something like that. But they still want to work with athletes and they want to help them. They They still have that drive. And that's good. That's what we need. So where is this divide? Where is this divide between the coach that's doing it right, even if they don't decide to choose the pathway like, like me or Cyrus, I mean, Damien, you went through your psychology degree and now you're coaching. So where do we have this divide? And, and to me, I think it comes down to this idea of, I'll start with a story. I w- was doing a little consultation with a newer coach and he had a lot of questions about physiology and the proper way to train. And he came from a very different background. He was a teacher. And obviously, if he's coming to me and hiring me to talk with him about this, it's something that was very important to him. So I said to him in our conversation, is that he seemed to have a bit of an anxiety, not anxiety, but like, you know, so much to learn and he he wants to learn it. It's just having the focusing your time. And I think if you're doing it right as a coach, no matter what level you're at, I think if you feel some kind of anxiety about your coaching process, that there's things out there that you still need to learn, then I think you're doing it right. And this comes down to how knowledge works and also gets into a conversation of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Someone with the Dunning-Kruger effect is going to think they're they're all right and they don't need to improve their their process at all. But what I learned through doing my PhD is is that as my knowledge expanded, if you think of knowledge like a sphere, and outside of that sphere is what you don't know, as your sphere of knowledge increases, then the surface area of that sphere increases. So the more things you know, the more you should start realizing that you don't know. And that's where that kind of anxiety, I don't know if anxiety is the best word. I don't know if you guys have a better word, but that's where it kind of comes in, where if you're starting to feel comfortable with what you're doing, then you're probably not doing it right. Because I've been working on trying to improve my process for a long time. And the longer I do it, now I'm finding, especially coming out of the PhD and being very specialized for a while now, moving into the more generalist role and trying to beef up the generalist side of my coaching. I feel that anxiety. I feel like that I need to read more papers. There's all these papers I need to read. There's all these analysis techniques that I need to stay up on. So, that's there. That's what's kind of driving me. And it's not like a bad anxiety, but it is a pressure. And I think it's a a healthy pressure as opposed to this other story that I was telling you guys earlier. I was friends with someone who was on Facebook who is is um, an ex-pro and he posted something to the extent that um, could he get insurance without... Um, going through an accreditation could he get coaching insurance without going through an accreditation and I almost said something to him but the, he was a very very nice he, he's an awesome guy and I really like him but in my mind that's not the way to approach coaching you would not be trying to get an accreditation just so you can get the insurance you go to for the accreditation because you want to learn new things and improve your process and that's going to be better for your athletes I mean I think i could learn something if i went if i went and i redid my level three test and read the level three book coaching book which is the lowest tier of coaching and through the usa cycling certification if i went and i read that book i know i would learn something else something new something i had forgotten even though i'd already taken that test and read that book already so to me it's a lot of this comes down to mindset you know do you have a little bit of anxiety that you need to learn more and you have to continue learning, learning things, even if the CEU program or whatever is not set up? Do you do continuing education for yourself because you want to help your athletes or because you are obligated to do so by your um, governing body? So, yeah, that's that's kind of my one of my last thoughts on that. Of Again, of this isn't a conversation about the haves and the have-nots in the coaching world, this is, I think, a conversation about just the realization of what you, what the mindset of the coach should be who wants to maximize the potential of their athletes.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, that would resonate with most of our audience because all the coaches that are listening to this are probably listening to this to try and expand that sphere and mm-hmm. pick up on a few things that they – didn't know before things that they hadn't thought about. I'm sure there's plenty of people here more knowledgeable on high performance units that are listening to this, but even then they're going to hear things and think I hadn't thought about that aspect, or that's an area that I might want to go and revisit to make myself a better coach now. So I think yeah, that's something that the audience will really appreciate when they listen to this.
2: So I think in conclusion, um, because this conversation was different for us because we don't have a lot of joking today because, I mean, if you want a little bit by, behind the scenes, everybody that's listening, we put a lot of notes down for today and we're probably reading off a lot of notes because we want to make sure that we get all of our talking points out. Um, so if it sounds um, like we're not having as much banter as, we're, as we usually do. There's a lot of bandwidth that's being used up right now during this conversation.
0: This is serious for us. <laughs> And
2: we we didn't write down a conclusion because we didn't know where the conversation was going. So, well, I'll ask the question again and we'll try to come up with a, con- uh, with a conclusion on the fly. What do you guys think? So the, our initial question was, can our current paradigm of improving cycling performance be improved? And is there anything that we see that could be improved or things that we like, things we didn't like generally?
1: I think the answer we came to then is that, yes, it can always be improved. Like there's mm-hmm. just always gonna be improvement as we learn new things about physiology and about human performance in general. And that's gonna come down to psychology and relationships between athletes and coaches and yeah, the the psychology of the athlete. But I think yeah, the conclusion here is that you can't rest on your laurels and just be happy with the performance world because in sport, the your competitors are going to be doing something better. They're going to be looking for the, the next leg up and the next way to get ahead. And that's why we don't see people uh, yeah, staying at the top of the sport for, for too long before someone passes them because they've got ahead in another way. So I think, yeah, the reality
0: is you just always have to be looking to improve. Mm-hmm. I got nothing else to add. I think that was a nice way to wrap it up. Good job. Um, Yeah, nice.
1: Well, we'll leave it there. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you would like to join in live, which we will be then, once we get some live people tuning in, we are happy to take questions on the fly as we're recording these. So you can find those via our social media, and that is on Instagram at Cycling Performance Club and on Twitter at Cycling Club Pod and also on Facebook, the Cycling Performance Club. Uh, You can find the links on there to tune in live and also find out each time we release a new podcast. Uh, If you appreciate this show or any of our other shows, we'd really like if you share it with a friend so that we can get this podcast to more ears and hopefully allow us to deliver plenty more podcasts in the future. Thanks for listening and we'll chat to you next time.
2: Bye. And uh, make sure you uh, support our sponsors now that we have sponsors.